The problem with trying to be topical in a podcast uh, that only happens once every few weeks is that time marches on. This episode of the 9pm Edict was recorded on Wednesday night, the 5th of April. It's okay. I was dying from a coughing fit at one point. You'll enjoy that, I'm sure. But it's not completely shit. And then this morning... Thursday the 6th of April, it's all happening and all the jokes emerge. Donald Trump sacks Steve Bannon, so that's, you know, they're dropping like flies, really. Australian Government Minister Peter Dutton makes it clear there's pressure uh, to dump Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, so it's on. Uh, And Yahoo and AOL rebrand as Oath, colon, O-A-T-H, colon, that's how they're spelling it. Uh, and, And lots more, too. I don't have time to do those jokes. I don't have time to make other sarcastic comments. This is the podcast as it was broadcast last night in all its glory. The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language and a constant low-level sense of dread. Wednesday, the 5th of April, 2017. North Korea launched yet another ballistic missile in the general direction of the ocean. The military officials believe that this was a a type of KN-15. So stick a nuke on it and we're fucked. Well, Japan is fucked. Or the ocean is fucked anyway. Uh, I'll also have some stories from my recent travels, including San Francisco, Ho Chi Minh City and the village pub here in the Blue Mountains. But overall, the message is that we're fucked. The man running America is a goose. And so we're really, really fucked. This is the 9pm end of the world. Definitely. And I'd like to begin this episode uh, by congratulating the Russian Foreign Ministry. Ah, yes, you chaps and chapettes in Moscow. You have done the world proud this week. Here's the new voicemail message for all of the embassy answering machines around the world, first in Russian, then in English. Добрый день. Вы позвонили в посольство России. Если вы хотите заказать звонок российского дипломата вашим политическим конкурентам, нажмите один. Чтобы воспользоваться услугами русских хакеров, нажмите два. По вопросу вмешательства в выборы, нажмите три и ждите начала избирательной кампании. Обращаем внимание, в целях повышения качества услуг все разговоры записываются. You have reached the Russian embassy. Your call is very important to us. To arrange a call from a Russian diplomat to your political opponents, press 1. To use the services of Russian hackers, press 2. To request election interference, press 3 and wait until the next election campaign. Please note that all calls are recorded for quality improvement and training purposes. Okay, so 
That was an April 1st joke. But I must admit, I do like the Russian sense of humour involved there. Uh, That uh, piece, according to the Chicago Tribune, which is the first newspaper I happened to stumble across that uh, mentioned it, that was supposedly, or at least labelled as, a pilot message posted on the uh, Russian Foreign Ministry's Facebook page. And it was just in there amongst all the rest of the articles about bilateral discussions with Kyrgyzstan and the daily briefings and so on. And it was built as something uh, that was being tested. I do like, as I say, the uh, uh, the Russian sense of humour. Uh, you could also count it as disinformation, I suppose. And the Russians have always been very good at their disinformation. There was, in fact, uh, a piece the other day on the BBC News website with the headline, Cold War Fake News, Why Russia Lied Over AIDS and JFK. Uh, I think they were actually separate stories, but, you know, who can tell with this sort of thing? Now, by fake news there, the BBC means propaganda or disinformation. In this case, disinformation. But for fuck's sake, people, just will you please... Oh, look, I'm late to this, obviously, but will you please stop just saying fake news? Because if you say fake news, that really just makes you a parrot because you're just sort of parroting everything that other people say. Fake news can be a lot of things. It can be disinformation in this case. It could be propaganda. It could be fiction. It could be a parody. It could be a a mistake. Or, yes, it could be a straight-out lie. So why not say what it is? And while while we're talking about overused words, photobomb, it seems to have become how any unexpected object in the background of a picture is suddenly a photobomb. And this kicked me off the other day because someone showed, I don't know, a picture of Saturn with one of its moons in the background. And, of course, you had this huge, big sphere of bluff that Saturn this tiny weeny little dot up in the background. Oh, that, and the moon photobombing Saturn. Now, all right that person may have been having a little joke it. It's hard to tell on the internet. But for fuck's sake, for me, a photobomb should involve A, some sort of deliberate intent, and B, it should significantly change the concept of the image. Now, deliberate intent might be just an animal wanting to investigate the camera or the photographer and running right up and getting in the way, or... If it's something in the background, it should be someone deliberately trying, as I say, to change the meaning of the photograph, the, you know, little fingers up, rabbit ears over someone's head or dropping it trousers or something like that. But please, people, some perspective. If we're going to have fake news photobombs, then let's do it right. We Ah, oh, this week. Also, with the tropical cyclone Debbie hitting uh, Australia up in the northern parts in uh, Queensland, we we had, of course, all the cliches coming out for tropical cyclone Debbie. Someone asked on Twitter, a journalist, uh, I assume that's what they'd like to call themselves, but uh, let's not get too carried away here, uh, was asking whether you hunker down or bunker down in the case of a a cyclone, and I, I thought neither, if you're trying to actually write some fresh news copy. Also, rain doesn't have to lash, doesn't have to be lashing rain, and winds don't have to be wild, wild winds. 
the wonderful thing about the English language is that it's got a huge number of words with many, many, many shades of meaning. And there are all these people who are allegedly writing for a profession and they keep using the same words, you dull fucktards. So this Russian disinformation, the one about AIDS, I lose so much about John F. Kennedy, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but the one about the origins uh, of AIDS are interesting, or HIV AIDS, because, of course, back when AIDS first started breaking out, so to speak, very poor choice of words, but there wasn't a cure and no one really knew when it came, where it came from. So the KGB back in the Soviet days, the KGB invented a theory that it was the product of a secret American research program at Fort Derrick, the Fort, sorry, Fort Detrick Laboratory. And like, it wasn't, but that was the bit of uh, disinformation that the KGB was spreading. And according to this BBC piece, uh, there's a chap called Thomas Boghard. <sighs> Jokes write themselves, don't they? He's an historian at the US Army's Centre of Military History. He's looked at that and he said this AIDS disinformation campaign was, was one of the most notorious and one of the most successful Soviet disinformation campaigns during the whole Cold War. And he's right. If you actually... It's worth a read for a whole lot of reasons, but a book called KGB, The Inside Story by Oleg Gordievsky, who uh, was in fact uh, uh, an MI6 slash KGB double agent, so there's a lot of good reasons to, to read his books. Uh, Gordievsky said that that AIDS disinfo was planted, I think it was in an Indian newspaper, and it spread out from there, and uh, eventually... The KGB stopped pushing that particular bit of disinformation uh, after a while because it just became unbelievable as uh, we found out more about HIV over the years. But because it had been planted in newspapers and discussed and so on, that kind of conspiracy has lived on on all the conspiracy websites and so on. Gordievsky, if I read between the lines, was a kind of, I think, amused that the whole thing took on a life of its own. Um, it's been a while since I've read Gordievsky, so the book's called just KGB, The Inside Story. Uh, you may want to confirm the details of what I've just said for yourself. But that whole thing is something that the, the Soviets and now, of course, the Russians call active measures. That is to actively sow confusion and distrust, either within a country or between allies and so on. And according to uh, Thomas Boghard, Boghard um, during the Cold War, in, the, in 1980 alone, the Soviets spent $3 billion on these active measures. Uh, so, you know, it was just an enormous amount of, of stuff spread out. It is, it is worth looking at. Actually, um, when the uh, web page for this podcast goes up, you will see uh, in a couple of days from when this is being recorded, you will see that I've, I'll put in links uh, to a couple of articles about Gordievsky's escape from Moscow. Eventually, his uh, bosses in Moscow 
started to be suspicious uh, because, as I say, he was actually an MI6 double agent, and and he's just recently started talking about how he got out of Moscow and the the trade craft and so on that they used along the way. It's it's fascinating story. So look out for that. Um, but active measures are still a thing. Uh, very much still a thing for uh, uh, the Russians as they are now and the FSB. There's been some news reports this week that uh, there's a whole lot of Twitter accounts that are essentially run by uh, Russian active measures agents and they they know when Trump's going to be online and on Twitter. So they just flood him with links to conspiracy sites and all sorts of disinformation because eventually, like, He's going to read it, right? Uh, so that I find fascinating. Uh, as I say, it all fits in with the Russian sense of humour. And I've, I've had this little theory for a while that, sure, maybe the Russians were pushing hard for Trump to be president, possibly just to sow discord originally. But I, th- I think I've said it before on this podcast that I think it appeals to the Russian sense of humour to find the dumbest man in America and make him president. And I I think it turned out better than they thought. People talk about links between Russia and WikiLeaks, and I I don't know what to think about that. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear that there is a one-sidedness about WikiLeaks dumps of late, but it's so, just so deranged in places as part of this big CIA dump recently. Um, the WikiLeaks said, oh, look at this. They pointed to some program code for some um, spyware or other. And there was uh, character strings that could be set in a number of whole lot of different languages. And their argument was, oh, look, the CIA has all this decoy code in it. It's like, Maybe, or maybe the other way of looking at this is that the CIA is an international spy organisation, so it's used to dealing with a number of languages. What? Dear. It does piss me off that anything WikiLeaks says tends to get an easy run these days. Mind you, you know, oh, CIA does this, WikiLeaks will run it. I think... I think it'd also get a run if WikiLeaks says, WikiLeaks says penguins shit out gold statues of Kanye West. Oh, yeah, we'll write that down. We'll go and get some. So that's the Russian side. So up against this highly skilled uh, active measures, disinformation campaign uh, against America and Mr Putin, the president of uh, Russia, who was, of course, a KGB agent himself back in the day. Against that, we have Donald Trump. Yes, I know I've gone on about this so much before, but we do have Donald Trump. And now his daughter, I think Ivanka's the daughter, right? I can't – daughter or the wife? I can't tell these Kardashians apart. Ivanka, anyway, is now in the White House as an advisor – in the last couple of days, she's been interviewed on CBS television in the United States. I want to play you a key bit of that interview, uh, although I'm uh, using a clip off CNN. So this is Wolf Blitzer's program, and it starts off with Wolf Blitzer. 
play a clip by uh, the uh, daughter, Ivanka Trump. She's also now a senior advisor to the president. She gave an interview to Gail King of CBS. Listen to this exchange, then we'll discuss. We hear the phrase complicit, that Jared and Ivanka are complicit in what is happening to the White House. Can you just weigh in on how you feel about that? There have been articles, there have been parodies. What do you think about that, that accusation? If being complicit is wanting to... Ah. Not all of that clip played. That is a bit unfortunate because we've missed the joke. How am I going to work around that? Um, I'm going to just have some wine. Um, oh, that's very nice. I'll tell you about this wine in a second. Can I be asked try to recover that clip? No. The To cut to the chase of that, Poor little Ivanka doesn't know what the word complicit means. So she basically said something along the lines of, and I tweeted it before, so I'm just going to scroll back. Just chat amongst yourselves for a minute. Ivanka Trump. Oh, no, I'm looking at the wrong column in tweet deck. Um, Yeah, it, it wasn't really that funny. Oh, here we go. Ivanka Trump clearly doesn't know what the word complicit means, but she said, if being complicit is wanting to be a force for good, then I'm complicit. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the brains in the White House. And then this week... Of course, as as you know, uh, another ballistic missile was launched by North Korea. I told you that at the very beginning of the program. Rex Tillerson, who is apparently apparently the Secretary of State of the United States of America. Here is Mr Tillerson's entire statement in response to the North Korean launch. And I begin. North Korea launched yet another intermediate-range ballistic missile. The United States has spoken enough about North Korea. We have no further comment. So part of me part of me likes that because whenever there's an international event, world leaders tend to want to rush to it and uh, have some sort of comment. We saw that with the uh, recent... Uh, attack in London by a bloke with a car and a knife near Parliament House. Uh, what's it called? The Palace of Westminster in London. So this guy with a car drives into some people. He gets out of the car. He's rushing towards uh, Palace of Westminster. He stabs a police officer and then gets shot. So it's not the greatest attack in the history of the world. I mean, yes, some people died and many more were injured, but... Let's put it in perspective. Someone, and I'll again uh, tweet a link, showed us a picture of London in 1993 after an IRA truck bomb. We had most of an office building of about six storeys destroyed and for about four or five buildings in all directions, every window blown out, the street full of rubble and whatever. Now that is a terrorist attack. 
But the person who posted that, uh, their Twitter handle is uh, unnamed insider. They said back in 80, uh, 93, rather, we didn't ban Irish people or Catholics. We understood it was just a small group of cunts. And this is really what we're seeing now. But what we're seeing now is on such a minuscule scale compared to that. Have a look in the Wikipedia and it'll tell you that during the whole IRA campaign from 1969 to 1998, there were at least 10,000 bomb attacks. Now, back then, of course, leaders led... Now they're just inflatable TV puppets and they're terrified if today's number on a a poll goes down by 0.5 percentage points. These days, a nutjob with a car and a life has a, quote, leader, unquote, by which I mean um, Mr Turnbull, a planet away from what's happening and he bleats on about attacks on freedom and democracy everywhere in the world. Get a grip, Malcolm Turnbull. Be a leader, not a knee-jerk, pole-driven jerk. Uh, sorry, what am I thinking? You might as well go and teach a duck to play the trombone as to get Malcolm Turnbull to grow a spine. That uh, is, is kind of a warped version of a famous quote uh, by the science fiction author, author Robert A. Heinlein, never try to teach a pig to sing, It wastes your time and it annoys the pig. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. Now, I need to tell you about the wine I'm drinking uh, this evening because there is, of course, a a sort of story behind it. Uh, This is... Actually, no, I'll roll back a bit. As you may know, uh, I'm based uh, up here at Wentworth Falls in the Blue Mountains, and I tend to get my podcast wine from Divine Cellars in Wentworth Falls, uh, where a chap called Phil uh, is someone who helps me select the wines. And I try to get above the $5 a bottle uh, gut rot when I'm doing the podcast. So I went to him today and said, yeah, this is a... uh, a kind of red wine sort of day, nothing too heavy. And his question to me is always, well, how much do you want to spend? And I said, oh, I don't know, $20, $25. And he said, this one's $30, pulling something off the shelf. He said, but this is the wine you're buying. I thought, oh, yeah. And he started telling this story, you know, handed me the bottle, put it in my hand. It's beautiful upsell work. Handed over and said, here's the, uh, here's the, um, 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 what's it called? Here's the bottle. Here's the wine you're having. Let me tell you the story. Now, this is uh, from the Bannockburn Winery in Victoria, which sounds a bit bullshit to me, but apparently there is a place called Bannockburn in Victoria. And this is their 1314 AD Shiraz, and this is the 2011 vintage. Now, the story here uh, is that... Uh, the the wine is, of course, named after the year of the Battle of Bannockburn, which, uh, as I just said, is 1314. You should be paying attention. But the thing about 2011 is that it wasn't a very good vintage. Now, come back to that. Apparently, this wine is normally up in the $70 a bottle range. But for 
various reasons, because the 2011 vintage was considered by the wine wankerati to be a poor year, they didn't make as much and they're selling it out at you know under half the price of um, of what it normally is. So it is oh, very, very flavoursome, very fruity, lots of plum in that, and a very plummy kind of palate as well. I should have done the whole nose thing first, but you can look it up yourself. Now, the interesting thing about so-called bad vintages, there's a couple of things. One is that um, in Australia, we really don't have bad, bad vintages. And I'll come back to that. But the, the French or the Italians, you have a bad year and all the wine is shit that year. Or so I'm told. I'm paraphrasing Phil quite heavily at this point. And uh, the thing about Australia, though, as I say, the bad vintages, they say, tends not to affect it so much because we have quite a few different wine regions. And there's also some sneaky little tricks about wine labelling in Australia. Namely, that even though this says it's a 2011 Shiraz on the front, you are allowed to have up to 15% of it being uh, this uh, vineyard Shiraz, but from a different year. You are also allowed to have up to 15% of Shiraz grapes from somewhere else, as long as it's the same year. And you are also allowed to have 15% of another kind of grape, as long as it's the same year. And all these things are cumulative. So even though it says... Bannockburn 2011 Shiraz on it, there could be up to 45% of something else blended in. How's that for a sneaky little bit trick? So that's one of the reasons Australia has such uh, consistent wine quality. Also, you know, our winemakers are uh, very good at the blending and all of that stuff. Anyway, this one's quite nice. The Bannockburn uh, 1314 AD Shiraz uh, from 2011. So the wine's from 2011. It's called the 1314 and not the other way around. I was talking about um, April Fool's jokes earlier. One of the others that I quite liked this year was by the uh, hacking site Frack, P-H-R-A-C-K. They go back for years. I mean, Frack was originally a kind of mimeographed uh, uh, zine back in the 80s, maybe even the 70s. Anyway, Frack.org, Frack.org, P-H-R-A-C-K.org, their April Fool's joke was to... Uh, replace their homepage with a takedown notice from the FBI's cyber division uh, labelling it a hacking site and uh, saying that it had been seized uh, under uh, section blah, 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 or whatever of the law. Now, it hadn't, obviously, uh, and you could confirm that because buried down inside the code for that page was a very geeky clue. I won't go into that. But what I loved 
is that the FBI cyber division on their Twitter account went along with the gag and posted a screenshot of Frack being taken down with just the uh, tweet, RIP Frack, which I thought was uh, rather cute. What else has been happening on the internet? I've got a few things to tell you about. Ah, yes, oil industry hacky hacky things. Uh, where we go? Oh, yes, oilandgasjobsearch.com. They uh, had a lot of stuff. Um, well, they had their whole database access, it appears. Oilandgasjobsearch.com. I think you can work out what they do. Uh, but someone hacked in and they've now told all the people that, you know, your username and password have been stolen. Also, your CV may have been accessed by an unauthorised third party uh, going back to about September 2016 and so on. Now, this is, of course, uh, not unusual, but it's worth pointing out that job sites are increasingly being hit and the energy industry has always been hit. Now, the strategy of hitting the job site is quite easy. You hit the job site, you get resumes, you get contact details, you get names, and so on. It makes it very easy to spearfish those people because you can send them something tailored that speaks quite specifically about the kind of job they're looking for and so on. Once you get into uh, the email of your uh, energy industry people, then you can get into your target, some energy industry business. And well, what kind of win you can have there? You could get information that would predict stock market moves. You can do what's called executive impersonation fraud and say, you know, hi, dear secretary, I'm, I've am i just got on holidays. Here I'm going in. Can you transfer this money to this place? Uh, which is a thing. There was a company in Western Australia that lost in a single transaction $700,000 to executive impersonation. I saw actually a news story the other day where a uh, another company – uh, was hit with one of these impersonation frauds. But the secretary knew not to transfer the money because uh, she said her boss is never that polite in email. Uh, what else could you do? Oh, you get plans of oil refineries and power grids and all sorts of shit, and you can have a bit of cyber-geddon in that. Uh, and really, in this age of big data, your cyber espionage might as well just scoop up everything and figure out a use for it later. I mean, that's what online businesses do with your personal data, right? They just gather everything. No one really knows what they can do with all that stuff yet, but hey, scoop it up. Um, and... When I was thinking about this the other day, using big data to look for patterns in all this data that you scoop up, that's not a very good sentence, it's worth remembering that for quite some years now, the spooks have been able to reassemble shredded documents, that's physical documents that have been shredded, uh, just like it's a giant jigsaw puzzle. After the uh, Americans were booted out of the embassy in Iran back when the... Uh, What's his name? Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, no, the other one. Who am I thinking? The Shah of Iran was booted out in the 1970s. Uh, the, um, the Americans got out of the embassy fairly quickly, but they 
shredded a lot of documents. But that was not a cross-cut thing. That was only in the strips. So the Iranian uh, intelligence services just hired a shitload of people. I think they were mostly women, but that's by the by, uh, to essentially piece them all back together, to just take a strip, look at how the letters ran off the edge and just find the strip that matched and so on. Now, that was done by hand. Uh, It must be, gee, about 10 years ago, maybe even more now, that I saw that the computer power was there to reassemble stuff that had been shredded all the way down with a crosscut shredder to the little kind of tiny squares of paper. Basically, you just chuck them all down on a scanner, you scan them all, shove it into a computer, big jigsaw puzzle, and eventually out the other end come all of the documents. So if that kind of big jigsaw puzzle has been solvable for years, imagine what sort of big data jigsaw puzzles might be solvable now? Not just reassembling documents, of course, but just just looking for patterns, looking for things that match up. Speaking of spooks, there was another um, interesting article. This one's in the New York Times. Again, there'll be um, a link on the website. The headline was North Korea's rising ambition seen in bid to breach global banks. Uh, long story short, uh, North Korea, apart from chucking missiles around, as we know, there are various trade sanctions and so on. So they're just robbing banks. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you? But there's one paragraph in that article uh, which was uh, fascinating to me, quote, North Korea's hacking network is immense, encompassing a group of 1,700 hackers aided by more than 5,000 trainers, supervisors and others in supporting roles. That's uh, an estimate, end quote. That's an estimate by the South Korean government. Uh, and because North Korea's infrastructure is so bad, the hackers typically work somewhere else, China, somewhere in Southeast Asia, even Europe sometimes. Uh, but because the North Koreans want to keep their people on a close leash, uh, those hackers are constantly monitored by their minders. Uh, now, the, the article went on to say that uh, North Korea has been doing this sort of stuff since the 1990s. And all I'll say about that is that if you were a country that's better than North Korea at the cybers, such as us in Australia, such as one of the others, and North Korea's been doing this stuff since the 1990s, what sort of reasonable conclusion can you reach? I mean, uh, we've had uh, the tropical cyclone Debbie uh, in uh, the northern parts of Australia. In the days following that, of course, we had the uh, uh, the rain fallout from that tropical cyclone come further south, including to the Blue Mountains near Sydney. Um, and I was about to launch into a whole whinge about that, but you don't want to hear about me getting kept in the rain waiting for taxis and things. So I'll save that for another time. But just say that having 
to deal with taxis not arriving and getting saturated in the rain on a day when I was actually heading down to Sydney for a medical report appointment, which was specifically about dealing with my massively increased stress levels of late. That was a bit funny. But those stress levels have been uh, what's caused um, uh, the two-month gap between the last podcast and this one. Oh, that and some travel, and I'll tell you about the travel in a little bit. Uh, but the important thing to realise is that I have to hold off on this podcast because stress levels mean I have to pull down the workload a bit and I have to concentrate on work that allegedly pays me money. Even though I get some stuff in, and I, I thank you all for that, but I do need to remind you at this point, ka-ching, yes, this is past the plate time, that this podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, through your subscriptions and one-off contributions. I've still been um, very bad at, um, excuse me, very bad at setting up the new subscriptions thing. Uh, I've had other priorities. But the one-off contributions have been coming in. So a thank you, big thank you since the last uh, episode to the generosity of uh, Youp DeVitt, Jody Miners, Paul Davis, Anthony Baxter, Eric Carlson, Brendan Forster, Simon Harris, Benno, Benno, oh, Benno, was I meant to say? Yeah, all right, Benno Rice, that's not a nice, Melissa Madsen, uh, and five people who are, are not, well, I'm not sure, four anonymous, and one just had as their name on it, valued cardholder which I quite like. So thank you to all those people, including Valued Cardholder, for your contributions. Very much appreciated. If you too would like to support this podcast uh, and my ongoing medical treatment, because uh, Christ knows do I need those meds, stillgarian.com slash tip. That's stillgarian.com slash tip. You can pay by card. You can pay by PayPal. I will accept your money in other ways too. We can come to some arrangement. Just ask in a polite way and I will help take your money. Trolls are winning the internet, technologists say, the Atlantic says. You need quotes for that. And said the subtitle, or the deck as we call it, to this Atlantic piece, and they're pushing the rest of us towards a Potemkin internet, a mere shell of the web we know today. Well, as far as I know, there were no trolls in Potemkin. That's uh, something you can look up for yourself in the history books. But technologists... Uh, telling us that the trolls are willing the internet. And I think that's probably because the technologists are trying to find a technical solution, a push-button bit of technology to what is actually a social problem. They probably want to put the trolls back on the blockchain or something. But here's the thing, that they want sort of some magic cunt filter and the problem is that you can't put the internet through a cunt filter unless you realise that half of the cunts are the cunts that enable the problem in the first place, i.e. the technologists. I mean, have you seen the kind of... Oh, 
I, I want to insert a whole rant of, uh, amongst the programmer culture in Silicon Valley and others. Just read some of the news stories recently about the the, the fairly high-level cunts that run Uber. Uh, people have asked before if I had problems getting a taxi in the rain, why didn't I use Uber? Well, one, I don't think Uber actually operates 100 kilometres from Sydney. But secondly, I'm not giving my money to those assholes, And I know that gets complicated because the deal for some drivers in some countries in some contexts can be better in that they get a higher percentage of the take. But uh, there's all these other factors too, and I don't really want to have to deal with that. But the basic point there, as I say, is that I think technologies or the technologists are the problem, and that's really not going to be solved by some sort of magic filter. That's my view anyway. And now it's time for Nicholas Fryer with a look through the arch window. You know battery chickens? Oh, yeah. What was their big hit? that um Something. No. Battery chickens. Electric poultry. That game on your phone. No. Not very brave artillerymen? I can wait all day, you know. <laughs> right. Say I do. For the sake of argument. Well, you know how they lead shit lives stuck in a box, turning grain into eggs. Hmm. I've got a solution. Well, I'm quite unliterally breathless with anticipation. VR. God save her Imperial Majesty. Little virtual reality headsets. Like headphones, only for those funny eyes of theirs on the opposite sides of their heads. They're headphones too, I guess. Be total sensory immersion. The, what you call it, chicken iron equivalent of the good life piped directly into their tiny brains. Chicken iron? Well, whatever the adjective for chickens is, you know, like feline, bovine, whatever. Hmm. No idea. I know what it is for robins. Robins? Like red breasts? Yeah. Turdine. You're kidding. Google it. <laughs> Google turdine. Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> so that's the plan. VR headsets. Mm. With maybe a little conveyor belt treadmill doover as well for exercise. Yeah, yeah, I see it. It makes sense one way. I mean, the worst thing about VR is from the outside you look like a fucking idiot. Yeah, but these are chickens. But these are, as you say, already chickens. Mm. So they're unlikely to look stupider under almost any circumstances. So it's perfect. Who said that techno-utopianism is dead? Precisely no one. And they were right. Actually, that gives me an idea. Mm. Well, you know how we've been looking for a retirement village for your dad? Mm. Until we started looking around, I had no idea how many wrinkly farms there are out there. We drive around from suburb to suburb, and every one of them has several sprawling geriatric warehouses with dozens of inmates... There's fucking millions of them tucked away, all busily gumming their ice cream and explaining to each other precisely what's wrong with this country, despite the fact that their last clear memory of it's from the 80s. So? So we VR them up too. <laughs> Bought them all into an old people's paradise. Computer-generated suburbs of Lions Club members, all with perfect bowling green. There's a thought. Every other meal is chops and boiled veg. 
cricketers only wear white <laughs> and you can drink all you want and drive home at 14 kilometres an hour. Where ethnic diversity means the Greek widow at the end of the street. <laughs> and everyone knows that Ralph's a poofter, but it's OK because he doesn't make a big deal about it. No, he just lives a life of quiet misery. No one ever has to think about it any more than they want to to give themselves a little thrill of revulsion and superiority. A faulty towers and that nice Ray Martin are on television every week. If he punch the wife, everyone will just not talk about it and they'll mm. still drink with you at the golf club. And you can grope teenagers with impunity. Hip-hop hasn't been invented. No one mentions any nonsense about climate change or trans-bloody gender or refugees or anything modern absolutely. And then... We disenfranchise the fuckers. They can cast their imaginary ballots for the terrified Tony wing of the Liberal Party. They can elect an imaginary parliament which can actually stop the imaginary votes. They can all negatively gear themselves into owning 15 imaginary investment properties. They can each have their very own imaginary coal-fired power station. They can bring back the virtual death penalty, outlaw virtual Muslims. And read article after bot-generated article in the Murdoch press denouncing wind turbines as cultural Marxism. They can loudly agree with each other about rampant leftism in imaginary universities. And in the real world, we restrict the vote to people under 60. That is, all the people are actually going to have to live with the actual consequences of their actual fucking decisions. It's a funny thing, you know, time. I never saw it coming that we'd be the only generation who ever knew how to program a VCR. Last week, Seb asked me what a phone book was. What did you tell him? Something we used before Google, like doctors. <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, I thought it referred to KFC. What? Battery chickens. Hmm. You know, because there's that sort of batter on it. Hmm. Fair enough. Cup of tea. Yeah, go on then. What's for lunch? Yeah, fancy an omelette? No, not much. As you may have heard, I've been doing a bit of travelling recently. I, that's part of the reason I'm just exhausted this is going to sound really bad coming after a uh, a plea for money not a plea a request a suggestion uh, that you might like to contribute but the, the irony is that all of uh, my travel is of course paid for by someone else and it fits into the kind of work that I do well, not the one to camera, but certainly uh, the international stuff is all paid for by someone else and I'm always there in that a kind of strange world where the industry, which is which is the cyber industry, seems to think that everyone needs to stay at a five star hotel. Which, don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining about. Uh, but it's it's funny to turn up to such places and and just hope like hell there's enough left on your card to cover the deposit to come in, uh, or that you've got enough. You know, money to get your Opal card to get back home from the airport or something like that. Anyway, uh, San Francisco recently. Um, I agreed with us uh, com- com- yeah, with some Canadian uh, colleagues that 
you know, we've we visited San Francisco a number of times over recent years, and this was the worst we'd ever seen the homeless problem. Um, I, I was really quite surprised by the number of people I saw uh, sleeping rough in the centre of town, particularly as the weather was appalling. Uh, it was winter, but you know there was even more rain than that. And I thought that might have all been due to the economy, but when I spoke to locals, turns out it's more complicated than that. But yes, um, San Francisco is seen as a, a place that's supportive of people in need. Uh, but there, there's a couple of things which have happened to, to really highlight uh, or at least to, to draw attention to the homelessness in this, the city. One is that, uh, what's that big American football thing? The Super Bowl was held in San Francisco. Now, not at the baseball stadium in the centre of town. That's at another thing. But there were all these other events related to the Super Bowl weekend, I suppose it is. And to make San Francisco more appealing... They really did just round up all the homeless people and dump them six or ten blocks further down, <laughs> which is like class act, right? So that's part of it. But it gets worse because the state of Nevada decided to get rid of its homeless by giving them all one-way bus tickets to San Francisco. So not only did you have the the homeless from one area – dumped uh, a little further out in the, in the ring around the CBD of SFO. Oh, FFS. Um, yeah, you had all of... Whoa! Excuse me while I... Just need to uh, put that back. You had um, all these other homeless dumped in the place. Uh, the city of San Francisco sued Nevada and eventually got $19 million compensation for the homeless. Uh, which strikes me as an expensive way to buy pork. Um, but, yeah, that didn't impress me. In a, in a city which has got all this money coming in and these supposed billionaires creating the future and they can't be asked taking care of the people who uh, who, uh, who really need their help. Vietnam was more interesting... I spent uh, a week in Ho Chi Minh City, what we used to call Saigon, uh, in Vietnam, uh, at a conference that I've written stuff about, and that's for somewhere else at another time. Uh, it, it was my first time in Vietnam, but I was curious to see the place. Uh, I know Thailand moderately. Um, I won't say well, but I've been a couple of times. Vietnam's obviously got a, a long way to go along that development chain. Um, Thailand is no longer a developing nation, according to the World Bank. It's a middle economy, a mid-ranking economy. Vietnam most certainly is still developing. But you can see a lot of growth, and it turns out that Japan – is the biggest investor in uh, Vietnam at the moment. Uh, and you can tell uh, just when you're in the city, uh, Japan is funding Ho Chi Minh City's new transit system. They're putting up 83% of the cost and you can see the hoardings going up and the, the excavation work is starting on that. And uh, once I'd finished doing all of the five-star hotel stuff and staying on in the city at my own expense, I got a little uh, hotel at the edge of – turned out it was at the edge of the city's Japantown. 
And you could really see that taking care of the Japanese salarymen was important. I mean, Ho Chi Minh City's Japantown is, as I tweeted on the night, a neutron star of hostess bars and cheap eats packed with all of the visiting businessmen and, of course, the eager local bar girls. Uh, I was wandering around there with a colleague who's uh, of Vietnamese uh, background but is actually working mostly in Tokyo. Uh, so he's familiar with the the Vietnam uh, Vietnam slash Japan linkage. And when we went around looking for somewhere to have a drink, it was almost impossible to find somewhere that wasn't actually a covert pickup joint. Um, and this was really, uh, interesting because officially sex work is illegal in Vietnam. Yeah, right. Uh, and because sex work is illegal in Vietnam, yeah, right, the elapsed time b- between me leaving the hotel and a motorcycle uh, taxi guy offering me a ride to where head job girls were was approximately 120 seconds. Now, I'm kind of used to that. Uh, I mean, I'm a middle-aged white guy, right? In Southeast Asia, you expect to be offered sex um, for money. But the intensity of Japantown in Saigon was different. I mean, in Bangkok, Soi Pat Pong and Silam Soi Song, uh, they're aimed at the global straight and gay tourist market, respectively. Uh, but they've also got stalls down the middle and they sell food and trinkets and dodgy DVDs and just all the street market stuff you'd expect and the sort of pickup bars are along the side. But in Ho Chi Minh City's Japantown, it's all directed right at one specific cashed-up demographic that's pouring money into the city, and that's the Japanese. So all of the Vietnamese working girls are calling out in Japanese, and it's just packed. It's 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 bigger than than uh, those streets I named in in Bangkok. Um, it's also interesting to note that. The week I was there, the emperor and empress of Japan had been visiting Hanoi uh, and uh, building up those diplomatic links. And uh, also that Japan has given the Vietnamese Navy a couple of patrol boats, which will come in handy uh, for what we could call the West Vietnam Sea. I think the Chinese call it the South China Sea. Japan obviously is interested in not necessarily being all Chinese, but uh, for obvious reasons, Japan doesn't want uh, patrol boats flying the rising sun cruising around that part of the world, so uh, having them flying the the Red Star of uh, Vietnam is uh, obviously a little more politically palatable to those who only look at the surface of these things. I did specifically like one aspect uh, of Vietnam, uh, well, like any uh, city in Southeast Asia, I suppose, and that's the street merchants. I was very pleased to find uh, one stall holder in the middle of the day, uh, just to, with his little cart at the side of the road. He was, selling, he was making coffee and selling it, but he would also, uh, shall we say, Irish up the coffee for just uh, 120,000 Vietnamese dong. So that's about Australian $6.90, so what, American five bucks. He's open from early in the morning. And uh, I should be clear, 120,000 dong was the total price for the coffee and the whiskey. 
had a choice of whiskies. He had a comfortable spot under a tree, had some crates with Hessian sacks sitting on top so you could sit and enjoy your uh, whiskied up coffee. Very civilised. It's a shame I didn't have time to, uh, to, to stick around. Ah, well, uh, there's my excuse to go back. Elephant stamp time! Elephant stamp time! Each episode of this podcast, when I remember to do it and can be bothered, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. It's been a while since I've had some elephant stamps, but I have one, two, three today. First, an elephant stamp of approval, since we were just speaking of alcohol, to a group calling themselves Melbourne Martini. Uh, And all I know about them is that they uh, had a poster up on the streets of Sydney, which you will recall is not Melbourne, Uh, but uh, they were advertising, and here are the exact words, Melbourne Martini, ready to drink craft cocktails in a jar, twist me, shake me. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. So craft cocktails in a jar that are shipped up from Melbourne. Obviously, none of these cocktails have... Oh, why even bother? Elephant stamp of approval for that disgusting concept, uh, which is... Uh, I, I just want to cry. I just want to cry at this point. Drink wine. Elephant stamp number two goes to McAfee. The security company, the information security company, or as we call it today, the cyber security company. Now, bit of history, McAfee was founded quite some years ago by John McAfee. Um, he who is a, well, long since uh, nothing to do with the company. Uh, he's kind of famous for being uh, famous. Uh, his big claims to fame were being... Uh, accused of murder in the jungles of Belize, uh, amongst other things. He's now back in the United States and uh, just being himself. I'm not quite sure of all the details. You can look him up for yourself. That's John McAfee. Okay, long after he sold the firm, it's kept trading under the name McAfee, then it was bought by Intel, the great uh, chip maker, microprocessor maker, and they called it Intel Security. And this week they've spun it back out and it's called The New McAfee. And I love the the first uh, press release I got because it, it kind of very, it, it tried very hard not to mention the fact that it used to be an independent company to begin with and not part of Intel. And talking about their new adventure as an independent company. And, yeah, right. Uh, but I've now had uh, the very great pleasure to receive a a lengthier email from Christopher D. Young, who's the new CEO or the CEO of McAfee. Now, the thing that you do need to know is that the slogan of this new company is "Together is Power." Yes. 
ab- uh, adjective is abstract noun. noun. Uh, people get paid money for that. But I just want to read you a little bit from this wonderful thing because it's it's glorious from Christopher D. Young. Our connected world is under siege by adversaries threatening the digital freedom sacred to us all. An industry with no shortage of problems needs a commensurate supply of solutions. With these challenges in mind, nearly seven months ago, TPG and Intel, uh, TPG not the Australian internet service provider, but the international um, uh, venture capital funding firm. TGB and Intel entered into an agreement to create one of the largest pure play cybersecurity companies in the world. Today, McAfee is born. See what I mean? It's like, no, that happened ages ago. And I hate that pure play. I mean, everything is pure play something or other company for a sufficiently vague definition of what they do. Ah, uh, wank, wank. Pacafi is hardly a new name in the industry. Three decades. Uh, the McAfee we unveiled today points to a future of promise as it stands on this foundation of leadership. It points to the future while standing on a foundation. It's kind of like the statue of William Light in Adelaide on Montefiore Hill. That promise begins and ends with our customers at its core. I think that means they're going to eat their customers. We believe the threat defence life cycle is better when orchestrated as a unified system. So so they're orchestrating a life cycle and it's a unified life cycle, so it's a unicycle. It's an orchestrated unicycle. So if you've ever seen one of those one-man band things, it's, oh, I love this. Someone got paid to write this. I'm, I am going to work under the assumption that Christopher D. Young uh, did not write this himself. If he did, I do. We know that consumers expect a digital footprint as safe as it is vast. (laughs) What? Oh, God, a lion employees who attack the seemingly impossible as boundless opportunity. Yeah, right. On today, we turn the page in the next chapter of the story. It's one we have written with customers, partners and employees alike with lots of crossing out. I want to look at this page with track changes turned on. It readies us to be more, even more focused and innovative than ever before, which implies that you have not been focused and innovative just until this point. With the singular mission of protecting all that matters to those who matter most to us. I thought they were a corporate cybersecurity company, but nevertheless, they, they are stopping tooth decay. Uh, bad breath. Uh, they're going to prevent car accidents. What a fucking load of shit! There's another couple of par. Yes, today it's born in a today a new again. Today a new McAfee is born, one that promises customers cybersecurity outcomes, not fragmented products. Yeah, well the oil and gas company I mentioned before had a cybersecurity outcome. It wasn't very good, but they had one. 
here we go. And this, 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 a new McAfee that vows to move this industry forward by working with competitors, not just partners, and one that offers employees a calling, not simply a career. A call, you don't offer a calling. You have a call. The employees have a calling. The employees have to have the calling. You can't offer a calling. Can you? No, of course you fucking can't. And then the last paragraph. Today is the first day of a new future, one we share together, because together is stronger, together is better, together is power. Onward. I'm going to pause and have another very, very large sip of this wine. Oh, I don't. Oh, I don't want to. That's really nice. It was. Oh. Okay, elephant stamp of approval to McAfee, and the third and final elephant stamp of approval for no elephant elephant stamp thing elephant stamp of. Off for excellence in the category of thinking. Yes, I should write that down somewhere. Goes to the person who said within my earshot only a few days ago, I actually caught a train the other day. I went to, oh, what's that ethnic suburb? Chatswood. Now, Chatswood is not exactly an arduous journey. It's about 10 kilometres north of the Sydney CBD. You go across the Harbour Bridge and it winds around a bit, Uh, but you get to Chatswood. It's one of the other business districts of Sydney. It does indeed have a fair percentage of upper middle class Chinese living there. Has for a very long time. It's not very arduous. There are trains every few minutes, but it's clear that this person didn't catch trains very often and didn't get out of whatever uh, kind of narrow region that they were used to being in, Chatswood was that ethnic suburb as if there are no other ethnic suburbs in Sydney. If you will allow me to use that phrase uh, to mean uh, where there are a significant number of people not of uh, Anglo-Saxon background. The other thing, yes... I can't remember the next sentence after that ethnic suburb. It was either they were all Asians or it was full of Asians or something. So, yeah, you know, I would just, we won't narrow down the Asians. I was really quite laughing at this point. Uh, and then they were describing, I mean, the train really was a big adventure because they were describing how, oh, the, you know, the new trains are very nice. The windows go all the way down to, you know, about your knees and you can look out and there's a great view. And and uh, someone then said, no, those those trains have been around for years. Oh, I thought the Tangaras were the new ones, which were built kind of in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So this this person's... <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, God. <coughs> Don't breathe the one. <coughs> I'm still alive. <coughs> I'll sneeze now. Um, I, uh, if this was a kind of music show... I'd play music. <laughs> I'll um, look. I'll thirty seconds of a theme should 
give me a chance. I'm okay. Uh, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'd nearly finished that bit. That that yeah, the Tangaras were thirty years ago. Elephant stamp for that person who enjoyed their day trip to the ethnic suburb of Chatswood. <laughs> <clears throat> Ethnic's such a kind of 1970s word, isn't it? I, I mean, I remember when the idea of Australia being a uh, uh, a, culture, a multicultural country, which was sort of the whole 1970s, 1980s thing. And in the 70s, we, we did have the rise of ethnic broadcasters, uh, broadcasting in languages other than English. Uh, now we would call them multicultural broadcasters, uh, Australia's special broadcasting service, SBS, being the classic example of that. Uh, but they were originally an ethnic broadcaster. And uh, that reminded me that uh, back at the time when we did then have a Minister for Ethnic Affairs, the colourful identity, and I use those words quite uh, deliberately, Al Grasby was the uh, the Minister for ethnic affairs at the federal level in Australia. Uh, he was well known for his uh, loud ties. Uh, shall we say flashy dressing? I mean, it was in the 1970s, so, yeah, flashy wasn't the quite, word, quite, quite the right word. But uh, I remember back at that period I was working uh, for ABC Radio in the uh, mid-1980s in Adelaide. And uh, that was back in the days when you had switchboard operators, uh, usually older women who knew exactly how the organisation worked and were suitably diplomatic and could shunt calls to where they needed to go. And I was actually um, at home one evening. I may have had a drink. I may have had people visiting. I may have been enjoying uh, uh, the company of my friends with some some wine and other things. And... Uh, the phone rang and uh, it was the switchboard operator at the ABC. And she said, oh, thank God you're home. What was that? And uh, she said, oh, I've got Al Grasby on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> As in the Minister for Ethnic Affairs. You go, yes. Uh, oh, okay. Um, why uh, have you got him on the phone? He says, Oh, he's he's on the, the the morning show tomorrow morning and he wants to talk to a producer about what's going to be happening and I've told him that it's 8 o'clock at night so the morning show producers aren't here but he wants to talk to someone and you're home. So can I put him through? And I thought, oh, yeah, right. And she just said, good on you still, by the way. He's completely drunk. And then click, something's on. So... <clears throat> What my friends then saw was me answering the phone and having this odd conversation. I said, yeah, all right. And the next thing I say is, oh, good evening, Minister. How can I help you? And it's just, oh, dear. The things you put up with. Um, 
Yes, Al Grasby, as I say, he was a um, very much a colourful identity. I was just pausing because I was flicking through to what my plan was to say that. Oh, I know what I've got to say. That's an elephant stamp. Oh, no, I've done an elephant stamp for the Chatswood person. No, that was just a uh, completely random sidetrack about Al Grasby. So I'll press this button. at home, boys and girls, because I'm a professional. Uh, I did mention, early up in the podcast, if you can remember that far back, if you've been paying attention and have a working memory, that uh, I would mention uh, some of my local adventures here in the Blue Mountains. Uh, One was when the other day I went to the pub here in Wentworth Falls. It's a small town, village really, there's only one pub, Uh, and... The front bar on a weekday evening usually has, uh, you know, most a dozen people in it. Many of them are regulars. Uh, and for very re- various reasons, I was being trolled by the barman. So I started trolling him back and then it escalated. And as he popped out to do something in the other bar, uh, one of the locals said, you know, he's the publican's son. Went, oh, fuck, what now? Anyway... I then decided that I needed to uh, be on his side in the kind of mutual blokey trolling that was going on in the front part. So it turns out that in my support of the young barman, I may have inadvertently called everyone else in the pub a cunt, but this happens. Uh, And it was also an evening when the cricket was on the TV. Uh, And, of course, I don't know a lot about cricket, but I knew enough to say... As I looked at the screen, India only has to get 106 to win. Well, Australia's fucked. At which point the publican looks at the TV, looks at us and says, well, we can always switch it over to watch Q&A. Everyone in the pub goes, get fucked, <laughs> which I thought was really quite nice. Um, the other thing about living in a village is that, well, everyone knows your business and Admittedly, I continued through, you know, at this particular night in the pub, it turned out the only three of us drinking as the evening wore on uh, were me, another bloke who works at the pub, and then the publican, his son having gone off somewhere. Uh, So, you know, we decide we'd better actually close the pub and... uh, uh, I just said to the publican, oh, can you call me a taxi? And he said, no, well, look, it's going to take a while to drive down from the next town, eight kilometres away. Uh, He said, I'll give you a lift home. So I don't know whether it's so much the responsible service of alcohol rules, but the responsible uh, dumping of your your customers in a remote dirt track in the middle of the night when I think about what happened. That wasn't very good. Drinking in the front bar of a local and chatting with people like that does bring back a um, sense of nostalgia, I think. And uh, this was happening online the other day too, where for various reasons, and I can't remember why, we were digging back through um, old videos uh, on on the tube of views of uh, various comedy performances in Australia. And one video came up of the Doug Anthony All-Stars, who were a huge 
comedy group, musical comedy group, great hit in Australia during the second half of the 1980s, just into the early 1990s, or I think. Um, Australians will of, a, of, of anything above a certain age will remember them. Uh, Paul McDermott as uh, the singer up front, and also Richard Fiddler and uh, Tim Ferguson as the other members. Uh, I had a number of interactions with the uh, the All Stars back when, well, when we were all young. Really, saw many of their shows. There were some fun times. There were stories to tell. I think I've told my interaction stories with the Doug Anthony All Stars before. Um, if I haven't, I'll check back, and if I haven't, I'll I'll do them in the next uh, podcast. Uh, but the thing about looking back at that is that, or at least when we were talking about it the other night, one journalist said that Paul McDermott, the guy up front, uh, is probably one of the, the best all-round entertainers that Australia has produced in recent years. He can sing, he can host, he can act. He's an artist too. He's, he's really got away from the comedy and is doing his, his art more. The thing that I I thought was amazing about the Doug Anthony All Stars is that despite the the anarchy, the almost Dada esque nature of some of this stuff, and the ever present sense of of danger, and perhaps I will come back and talk about those stories another time. Um, there was just some beautiful music and beautiful vocal work in their stuff, particularly the voice of Paul McDermott, who, although the devil in him seemed to inhabit him with his comedy, there was something quite astounding uh, about his voice. And uh, I thought, therefore, I'd end this podcast with uh, one of my favourite versions of a song they did. I think you'll enjoy it.
For now, if you'd like to support this humble little podcast, you know what to do. Go to stillgarian.com slash tip and empty your entire bank account into the theme. The next episode of The Edict will be when I feel like it. Until then, I'm Stillgarian. Have a good one. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.